Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the legacy of Dayton's and Macy's in Minnesota, the 2017 John Beargrease Sled Race, and a preview of the 2019 NCAA Final Four in Minnesota. But first, lawmakers took another big step toward providing health insurance premium relief to more than 125,000 Minnesotans Thursday when they passed a measure similar to one passed by the Senate late last week. But in between passage of the two bills, Governor Dayton and Republicans went back and forth over specifics of a relief reform bill and over who was to blame for the measure taking as long as it did to pass. On Tuesday, Dayton was joined by Minnesotans impacted by the high premium increases, and he went on the offensive. We're here again to urge the Republican House to pass the premium relief bill, pass the one that I've proposed, which will get relief most immediately to people who are here today and others around the state who seriously need it. I was astounded by Speaker Dowd's comment uh, in an interview on Sunday. He said, we know Minnesotans need relief. The governor's plan wouldn't give relief until April 1st. We thought state government could do it quicker. Well, my plan won't provide relief until he passes it. If he passed it in November, as I requested, in a special session, we'd have the relief to be, be available right now. As it stands, the longer they delay to pass it, the longer it's going to take to implement it uh, under whatever scenario, and the longer uh, the assurance of relief is going to be delayed for people who, who, who need it and, and who before January 31st need to know what's, what help they're going to get or not get so that they can make their decisions before the end of open enrollment. Dayton repeatedly said he was mystified as to why it was taking Republicans so long to get a bill passed, but House Speaker Kurt Dowd responded. Well, you know, we had a, a, a motion on the very first day of session to suspend the rules and take the bill up, declare an urgency in the in the House. Democrats decided they did not want to declare an urgency. We needed their help to do that. Um, I, I, it's not time to blame. Uh, campaign's over. Uh, the, the jury's back in on that. Uh, Minnesotans put Republicans in charge of the legislature because they trust us more on these issues, and we're going to lead. We'd like to do it faster. Uh, you know, Democrats didn't want to cooperate in that uh, on the first day of session. So we're doing it. We're getting it off the House floor absolutely as quickly as we can and still sending it through all the committees that it needs to go to. Among the main sticking points, the governor and Democrats proposed a 25% insurance premium rebate for quick relief to Minnesotans, while Republicans pushed for long-term health insurance reform and for premium relief to be based on people's income. Dayton said he was willing to look at long-term reform eventually. I give him my word that I will sign a reform bill and it will be one that will be comprehensive and give Minnesotans the best results for a reasonable price. And Dayton added, Why would I oppose a reform bill? Why would I want to keep the status quo the way it is and, and, and subject good Minnesotans to this kind of pain and suffering and uh, distress uh, and do that again for another year? I, I mean, it's just unthinkable. 
On Wednesday, after Dayton met with legislative leaders, it seemed like progress was being made when Speaker Doubt said, I absolutely believe we'll have something passed by the end of next week. Doubt went on to say there appeared to be some common ground between the two sides, with an understanding that more reform would be required down the road. My members, I think, have been less concerned about that. We know that this can't be the only train out of the station, and I think everybody knows that. It's it's kind of, it's so obvious that we need to do more reforms or we're going to be in a worse situation next year than we are right now. So, um... You know, I, my members are, are comfortable with the fact that there is going to be another bill with, with more long-term uh, sub, sub, substantive reforms that will you know, help stabilize the marketplace for next year. Um, and that needs to be our, our goal. Uh, and I think we all share that goal. I think even the governor is, is indicating now that um, you know, he understands we have to do things that will stabilize the marketplace next year. We'll be you know, in a worse situation next year than we are now. In the middle of this debate, Minnesotans burdened with health insurance premium increases. Minnesotans like Sherry Sexton from Millville, who shared her story earlier this week at a news conference with Governor Dayton and other Democratic leaders. Um, my husband and I operate a dairy farm in southeast Minnesota for the last 37 years. Um, I left him back home uh, finishing chores and dealing with the ice. In uh, 2016, our health insurance was uh, $1,585 a month through Blue Cross Blue Shield. In 2017, it is currently $2,197, which includes Vince and myself and our college-aged son. We have a $13,000 deductible. Uh, we do not qualify for any of the Minsure uh, subsidies, and for that reason, um, we pay everything on our own. My husband was diagnosed with leukemia 10 years ago. He continues to remain in remission. Last year, I was diagnosed with stage 2 breast cancer. My medical bills were over $100,000. Farming... For 37 years, we've acquired a great deal of equity in our operation. We've helped two children start dairy farming, with the youngest planning on returning uh, to the farm and take over once he's done with college. Health insurance is a major expense for our family, as with any other self-employed person. With $26,000 per year in premium, we would receive roughly $6,700 from Dayton's proposal. We ask the legislature to compromise with Governor Dayton and quickly pass this premium relief that would take effect right away. Asked whether she was frustrated by the political back and forth, Sexton told reporters, The argument or arguing between the Democrats and the Republicans, um, just that nobody can seem to agree on anything, and they all agree on, yes, we, you need to do something with health care, but yet nobody wants to get together and, you know, give up their hatchet and say, okay, let's, let's agree on this. As Governor Dayton has said, um, you know, everybody just kind of holds tight and doesn't want to give in. With the Minsure open enrollment deadline of January 31st fast approaching, the certainty of health premium relief seems to be going down to the wire. And on a national level, with President Trump and a Republican Congress promising to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, the issue of health care costs for Americans doesn't appear to be going away anytime soon. More Minnesota Matters after this. As a young teenage boy, I didn't even know what autism was. How do you even spell that? 
A few years later, I heard that a friend's cousin's son had been diagnosed with autism. I still wasn't sure what that really meant. When I went to college, my roommate's brother had autism. When I moved to the city for work, my best friend called me and told me his son had been diagnosed with autism. We were both in shock. I still remember the day I walked into the house and saw that look on my wife's face. I knew something was wrong. I'll never forget how I felt when she said, our son has autism. Autism is getting closer to home. Today, one in 110 children is diagnosed with autism. That's a 600% increase in the last 20 years. Learn the signs at autismspeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The countdown to the 2017 John Bear Grease Sled Dog Marathon is underway. MN's Tasha Radel digs into the history of the race. That's right, Scott. The big race kicks off on Sunday, January 29th at 11 a.m. Here to talk about the big event is Jason Rice. Jason, I know a lot of planning goes into this event, and it wouldn't be possible without the hundreds of volunteers. You folks must be proud the strong tradition continues. We're very proud to have had it uh, not only running for all of these years, but we're proud of the fact that this isn't just uh, an athletic event. This is not just a sporting event. This really, truly celebrates culture and history in Minnesota. John Beargrease was not some pretend character. He actually was a U.S. postal carrier uh, working up and down the shore of the north shore of Lake Superior in Minnesota in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And uh, he did so in the wintertime, famously by dog sled. So um, I think the fact that he was real, he did this, he used, uh, he saw these, some of these same trees, you know, the lakes and rivers that he went over and across and around. Um, he traversed the same terrain and saw a lot of the same scenery, and he really made settlement much more possible. So for anybody who's got a cabin up the shore or happens to live on the north shore of Minnesota, a lot of the early settlement and the development that happened really happened uh, in, in good part because he made communication possible. So I think that's, that's first and foremost why we are so proud of this and why I think Minnesotans can grab onto this and say, hey, this is, this is uniquely Minnesota. This is us. And this is one of the longest uh, races in the lower 48, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. We're the longest running sled dog marathon in the lower 48. Um, there's a couple that come in around the 300 or 350 mile range, but uh, we're actually closer to 400 miles going from uh, our starting line in two harbors up to basically the Canadian border up at Grand Portage. Um, and uh, John Beargrease himself was a member of the Grand Portage Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, and it's kind of kind of cool that we have his great-grandson great is on our board of directors. Um, so... Yeah, we're, we're one of the longest, and uh, or we are the longest in the lower 48, and we're also a qualifier for the Iditarod, which kind of adds a unique element. Because you'll have a number of mushers who have a, uh, let's face it, there's not a lot of people who do this sport, right? There's a small crowd who are very into their dogs, and they're into this um, very deeply. It's a, it's a way of life for them, and when you have a big kennel of dogs, that's what it takes. It takes a real lifetime commitment uh, to what you're doing. Those people uh, definitely put their heart and soul into doing this, and um, it's it's just really neat that we have uh, that we've got this event that not only commemorates something but 
gives people a, a chance to exercise this great passion. And about how many mushers take part in this event? Uh, it varies from year to year. So we have a, a cap uh, on the number of mushers that we have space to accommodate. So that would be 50 teams in the mid-distance and up to 30 teams in the full 400-mile marathon. Uh, this year I think we're looking at uh, about 12 teams in the marathon, the full 400-miler, and we're looking at close to 20 teams in the mid-distance. What we've noticed is that uh, all of the races here in the lower 48 have been down the past couple of years. Uh, the number of people who are perhaps getting into this sport, it's, it's expensive and time-consuming. Uh, so I think uh, all of us uh, race leaders from around the lower 48 have kind of tried to put our fingers on this and, and figure out what it is that's causing this. And I, I think we're just seeing slightly lower numbers just uh, in, in good part due to economics. More people have to commit more time to working and, um, and family, and it just makes it a very uh, difficult thing to have time to raise and train a kennel full of dogs. And Jason, I know in years past there's been a sudden trouble when it comes to snow depths. Is that going to be a problem this year uh, up there in northern Minnesota? Not a bit, as long as we don't get rain. Uh, we've got a few warmer temperatures out there this week. We're not really even that concerned about those. Um, the, uh, the, the rain that we had a couple of weeks ago that I think most of Minnesota saw some rain and slush and it, it froze and it froze down hard. The good thing about that is that it started a base and um, a, a nice cold base right down next to the ground. That'll actually help to uh, insulate the snow that we've got. It'll help stop it from uh, being melted away at all from underneath. There's a, a good crust of, uh, of frozen ground under there and, uh, and a good crust of ice actually on top of that. So I think we're in very good shape. The further north you go in Minnesota, uh, which is us, you know, starting in Two Harbors and going all the way to uh, up the Arrowhead and to Grand Portage, Minnesota, you wind up with uh, deeper and deeper and deeper snow the further you go north. So we're in real good shape this year, even with a few warmer temps. For more information on the event, go to beargrease.com. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Son, uh, can you hand me that big screwdriver? This one, Dad? Uh, no, that's a wrench. Uh, I need the long one close to your foot. Why? Uh, because I need to loosen a screw. Why? Because I have to change the oil filter. Why? Because I love you! <laughs> <laughs> the smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. It gets dirty, okay? All right. Now pass me the new filter. Why? Ha <laughs> <laughs> very funny. <laughs> Take time to be a dad today. For more information, dial 1-877-432-3411 or visit us at www.fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Flint Lockwood here from Swallow Falls. My friends and I have just discovered these amazing living foodimals. But wait, we've also discovered a crisis that needs our help. According to my calculations, one in five kids in America struggles with hunger. That's almost 17 million kids. Our mission is to help solve hunger by teaming up with the Feeding America Network 
to get food to kids facing hunger in communities across the country. Feeding America is a nationwide network of food banks, helping connect children and families who face hunger to billions of pounds of food, reaching shelters, schools, and community centers in every county in America, including yours. Help Flint and the Feeding America network of food banks get food to the people who need it in your community. Find your local Feeding America food bank at feedingamerica.org hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Dayton's, it's a name that many Minnesotans who have been around for a while automatically use even when they really mean Macy's or its predecessor, Marshall Fields. Macy's is closing what used to be the flagship store of retailing in Minnesota, the Midwest, and indeed the nation, the old Dayton's at 7th and Nicollet in downtown Minneapolis. Governor Mark Dayton's father and uncles built Dayton's into a national empire that ultimately spawned Target. Nothing lasts forever. <laughs> and... Uh, it's, it is what it is. I think what's important is what's next. MNN's Bill Werner was at that news conference when Governor Dayton was asked to reflect on the closing of the store, which once bore his name. One reporter said he was slightly surprised that the governor is not more nostalgic about the closing of a building that, for many decades, epitomized the grandeur of the old department stores that once graced the downtowns of large cities. Bill, do you agree? Well, Scott, sometimes it's a little difficult to discern exactly what the governor is feeling. He's a Minnesotan, after all. But I think if we listen to a little more of his comments, we probably can detect not only the hard-boiled pragmatism of a politician born and bred in the tough environment of competitive retail, but also optimism for the future and maybe even a little sentimentality about the past. My father and uncles, 50 years ago, started up Target and then increasingly invested in Target and to the point where when uh, the department stores were sold, uh, Target was 90% of the revenues of the company thereabouts. I, I don't have any inside information, but I followed it. That was about the year 2000. Uh, so, you know, they were right. They, they saw that, foresaw that downtown, large downtown department stores were we're not the future of retailing, and, and that's been proven to be correct. And, and you know, uh, Hudson, the, the enormous store in downtown Detroit, uh, that uh, went, went under, I don't know, 20 years ago or so. So, I mean, one by one, these major, and many of these major downtown department stores have, have just not been successful, and Macy's found that out with uh, regards to the Minneapolis one. And Scott, as my friend Denise and I get ready to go up to the 12th floor of Dayton's downtown Minneapolis for one final meal at the Oak Grill, the place where my mother and my late father took my sister and me as kids, and one time as a young boy when I took my mother there because my father was working and women couldn't go into the Oak Grill at that time without a male escort, well, as we enjoy that last taste evoking a long and dear memory, let's remember something just over a year ago. It was a week and a day before the official kickoff of the holiday shopping season at a church five blocks from the old flagship store that Minnesotans said farewell to a man who created memories for many of us. Department store magnate Bruce Bliss Dayton was born in 1918, and his son, Governor Mark Dayton, remembered. My brother Brant recalls morning walks with my father singing, Oh, what a beautiful morning. What a beautiful 
beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I got a beautiful feeling. Everything's going my way. Dad and his brothers filled their stores not only with the best merchandise sold at the best values, but also with the beauty they found in nature and the vibrancy they felt in life. The store featured jubilee sales, daisy sales, spring garden shows, eighth floor rainforests, art galleries, and bright window displays along Nicollet Avenue. People liked Dayton's. Yes, they did. A child, this child in fact, would be brought through the huge and mysterious city to the epicenter of all that hustle and bustle. And there was the fabulous building reaching for the sky, 12 stories packed with many things not yet met. Where should, where could one start in that block square edifice that held everything from books on musty shelves to cuckoo clocks to smart clothes that I was too young to care about? My favorite was the furniture department on the seventh floor, the whole floor where a child, after rising through innumerable levels on escalators giving quick glimpses of delight, could wander off back into aisles and alleys, perching on sofas and chairs fit for kings among fine paintings, listening to grand music, and then choose from endless offerings, be it fussy Victorian or minimalist Scandinavian, how one would arrange the attire of one's own domicile to come and plan years not yet arrived as the adults downstairs aimed for the moon and strove to be free. Well, much is different now. And indeed it should be. But the present day bustle on the skyways and the stores of the new millennium, stocked by trained experts and computer algorithms, they are not the same. For certain it is because we have all changed, grown up, assumed the responsibilities of adulthood. But I think it is also because those places now gone were built and made alive by those people who lived through a Great Depression, which ushered in a terrible war. And then, having fulfilled their sacred obligation, they assumed yet another, and with hard work, grasped the cusp of halcyon days, freely giving its fruits to their offspring. The book of that generation they begat is mostly filled now, but it remains to be seen how those children write the final pages. Bill Werner on the Minnesota News Network. Minnesota Matters will return after this. If your walls could talk, what would they say? I have held the same mirror for 13 years. I have been decorated with purple dinosaurs, baseball teams, and football helmets. I have witnessed 33 Thanksgiving dinners. And one wedding proposal. I have tiny notches marking the growth of three children. I have caused a learning disability. I am the reason that a fifth grader simply can't sit still. I am responsible for a five-year-old's rage. Just because you can't see lead paint doesn't mean it's not on walls, doors, windows, and sills. 
Today, lead paint poisoning affects over 1 million children. If your home was built before 1978, your family could be at risk. Let's make all kids lead-free kids. Log on to leadfreekids.org or call 800-424-LEAD. I am the reason a child has trouble hearing. If your walls could talk, what would they say? Brought to you by the Coalition to End Childhood Lead Poisoning, EPA, HUD, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. April of 2019 will be a red-letter month for Minnesota sports fans as U.S. Bank Stadium will host the NCAA Men's Basketball Final Four. The local organizing committee opened its downtown Minneapolis office this month, and MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm sat down with the CEO of the committee, Kate Mortensen, to discuss the next 28 months leading up to the big event. Exciting times, certainly. Obviously, it's been exciting, um, but this is kind of the next phase. What does this month signify, and uh, what, what's exciting about it? What's exciting about um, this month and the beginning of 2017 is that um, we, we open our, our office and that's important because we have a place to bring together our small high-performing team. So we'll start to onboard um, our, a couple of, of hired uh, team members and make some announcement about that in the, in the coming month and really pivot from visioning to formal planning. And I know there's a lot of work. I think a lot of you know a lot of people watch it on TV. They buy tickets. They go see it. They watch the tournament, but they don't understand all that goes into it. I mean, we're talking 28 months of of planning here to get to that one final event. Just give us an example of some things that now you guys maybe the next phase. What's the next immediate thing, and then long term as well with this? Yeah. So the planning process for a Final Four used to be 18 to 24 months, and now even cities that have hosted in the past five to seven years are saying more times better. They wish they had more time. They wish they had more um, partners uh, engaged even earlier. And so as a host city that hasn't seen a Final Four since 2001, and in those intervening 18 years, the event has really grown, and so too has our city grown, we really feel like it's going to be important for us to take advantage of the extra planning time. So what's right ahead of us is assembling that core team of four or five and laying out the committee structure of about 20 committees, those 20 committees will be working on the operational details of public safety planning, transportation planning, um, you know, marketing will be a big part of it because if you don't know about the events that a host city um, gets to enjoy as part of a Final Four, then you don't mark your calendar and plan to come. What kind of impact, I know we, there's lots of studies that have been done, but what kind of impact will this have when it's all said and done for the Twin Cities? Well, I think that really is the key question. What kind of impact will this event have? And one way to think about impact is the economic impact that a Final Four brings. And you can debate numbers. Uh, and, you know, we feel like Indianapolis is a good reference city for Minneapolis. And their uh, post-event calculations for um, spending over the four days was about $80 million, a little shy of $80 million. That's a pretty good reason to do a Final Four. But we think that that is not the only reason to do a Final Four. And we would really like to um, wring value out of this opportunity beyond the four days. So we have a community impact vision that is our double bottom line, if you will, and that focuses on youth and inclusion. What can happen too, I suppose, if people see, if, I mean, basically it's a showcase for the city. Out-of-towners watch on TV, they see Minneapolis written on the end zone of the, of the basketball court, they see feature stories done on the city. Can that help? And then visitors that come in, maybe their team's in it, um, and maybe they like the town, and maybe they come back later for a visit for something totally different? 
Well, absolutely. I mean, the, the Minneapolis and Minnesota in our region and the attention, a Final Four, remember, it's the road to Minneapolis. Repeat, repeat, repeat. The road to Minneapolis many millions of time, times. And that's a wonderful opportunity for us to get our key value propositions and messages about the great place that uh, Minneapolis and Minnesota in our region is for people to come and work, people to come and play. We feel like a Final Four is an opportunity with the number of large companies we have here to express that this is a great place to come and make your career. The very livable city and frankly much more diverse than many people realize. So as fans in Atlanta or Houston or Dallas are watching our events and looking at our Facebook page, we really want to show that future face of, of our city and invite and attract and engage that larger audience. New stadium with the Vikings, and we've all seen Vikings games now. There's been concerts, there's been monster truck rallies, all kinds of stuff. What's it going to be like as a basketball venue, and what can that do to help us showcase what we have here too? So the stadium is going to be an amazing in-venue experience for a Final Four for a couple of reasons. There is not a bad seat in the house. Uh, we have those giant HD screens that are almost as big as you see in, for example, Dallas. And we have a sound system and other systems that are really state of the art. Our, our friends at the NCAA cannot wait to be inside that venue for a Final Four uh, because it is just as, as new and as up to date as a venue can be. Last question for you, um, as this is all said and done, is this a, also a showcase that more events can come and maybe another Final Four, maybe multiple more Final Fours, college football playoffs, another Super Bowl? I mean, it, that's all part of this too, I would assume. It absolutely is. And from the time of selection in late 2014, we feel like we're in tryout for a future Final Four event. Everything we do, we want to express to the NCAA that we will be a great partner to them into the future. Great. Sounds great. Uh, the work's just begun. Enjoy it. Thank you so much. That's Kate Mortensen with MN Sports Director Mike Grimm. The last time Minneapolis hosted the men's Final Four was 2001 at the old Metrodome. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station. Hey.